Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 324, Healing from Divorce at Camp. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And before we start today's episode, we wanted to let our listeners know about an exciting opportunity that's actually being put together by one of our very first guests, Sarah Lefton, the founder of BIMBOM, who is now the creative director of this new project. It's called the Digital Storytellers Lab. A few times on this podcast, we've talked about the idea, which was put forward by Amichai Lalavi, that artists are the new rabbis. We've also talked about how so much of what we call Judaism boils down to storytelling. Well, now there's a new fellowship opportunity for creative Jewish artists to contribute to the future of Judaism through storytelling. It's called, as I just said, the Digital Storytellers Lab, and it's a cohort-based program for folks who want to tell a Jewish story through new media. The Digital Storytellers Lab is pioneered by the Jewish Writers Initiative, and it's a chance for 12 fellows to receive eight months of coaching and mentoring, plus a stipend of $20,000 as they craft a Jewish story through videos, podcasts, or another digital modality. The Digital Storytellers Lab is specifically interested in stories told through episodic narrative, meaning they unfold through a series of episodes. If you want to learn more, head over to jwinitiative.com and check out all the details. And now let's turn to our episode for this week, which is on a topic that we haven't really explored before, but of course it's a really, really important topic, divorce and healing from divorce through a Jewish lens. As we'll talk with our guest, Deborah Newbrun, about, there of course are Jewish traditions about how to get divorced, but there aren't a lot of Jewish traditions about what to do after you're divorced, how to heal from it, how to move on, And this new initiative, Divorce and Discovery, a Jewish healing retreat, created by our guest, is a step in that direction. Divorce and Discovery, a Jewish healing retreat, is a long weekend of immersive Jewish healing, community building, and self-discovery that takes place at Camp Tawanga, which is one of the West Coast's leading Jewish camps. It's right near Yosemite National Park. And so you're in one of the most beautiful places on earth, And so folks who are looking to heal after a divorce are invited to this stunning place to, as they say, traverse one of life's great challenges with the support and guidance of Jewish ritual, wisdom, and community, as well as amazing guides. Our guest today, Deborah Newbrun, is the founder of Divorce and Discovery, a Jewish healing retreat. So just note a few things. Deborah Newbrun served as the director of Camp Tawanga from 1984 to 2006. She is also a pioneer in the Jewish outdoor food and environmental education movement. And she is the co-author of a book called Spirit in Nature, Teaching Judaism and Ecology on the Trail. Deborah Newbrun is also the founder of Keshet Camp, the first Jewish LGBT family weekend in the country. And she's also the director of the famous queer Talmud camps that happened through our friends at Svara. All of this work was recognized in 2018 when she was awarded the Covenant Award, which is considered sort of like the Nobel Prize for Jewish education. 
One final biographical note, Deborah Newbren has recently received rabbinical ordination from our old friends at the Pluralistic Rabbinical Seminary. A lot of Judaism Unbound episodes are coming together in this one. So let's dive in. Deborah Newbren, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you, Dan and Lex. It's so great to be here, really. Well, let's talk about this new program that you've created. I guess I wanted to start with what is the the need as you see it to create a a healing retreat for people who have gone through divorce? This camp will be running in October 2022 for the first time. And I know the impetus I got for creating a camp like this was that when I divorced 16 years ago, there was nothing in the Jewish world but a get. And a get is not spiritually uplifting. It's not emotionally transformative. It is it is just legal paperwork. And I um, was married to a rabbi my first go around and knew a lot of rabbis because I'd gone, I'd been with her through her rabbinical school training. So I knew a lot of rabbis up close and personal. And I turned to probably six of them asking for like, like, what is there for me? And they were just empty handed. And I know they felt badly about being empty handed, but nonetheless, that was it. As I was thinking about what does this world need, what Jewish innovation is left for me to do, this came up as a beacon of, wow, if I can help people through their divorce, Jewish people lean into the tradition, find places in the tradition, innovate places in the tradition that might offer some healing, that would be a nice swan song. It's interesting to put it that way, like to look to the tradition when actually what you found is that the tradition doesn't have the mechanisms that you're looking for. So can you talk a little bit about how you see innovation in that respect? Like, what does it mean to to both be consciously innovating and also talking about the tradition? Right. I think our tradition does talk about separation in lots of places. So, for example, Havdalah, the ritual of separating Shabbat from the rest of the week is about separation. It's about taking the Shabbat moments of holiness and separating it from the ordinary moments of the week. Both are great places to be. So we do know how to separate. And yet we haven't ever had a divorce Havdalah, for example. And what would it be like to be able to know that your shul once a month had divorce Havdalah and everybody who got divorced anytime in their life wanted to come to divorce Havdalah That would be a regular thing happening in our community because I know there are healing services, but I haven't heard of anything like that. I'm thinking about lots of rituals that I practice and how could I use this at the divorce retreat and also to help folks who are divorcing. So one is Tashli from the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah when you go to a body of water and you cast off the things you don't want to carry forward into the new year. It used to be that we would throw bread. And now I think as we pay attention to the state of the environment, we cast pebbles. But this idea of like, could we take Tashli and with a group of people who are divorcees or in the middle of divorce? And and by the way, when I say this, I don't mean like you have to have been legally married. You're separating from a meaningful and powerful relationship. Another one is a mikvah. Nobody invites you to take a mikvah, which is a ritual bath to cleanse from kind of one state of being to another. But I think we can use that. And since the camp where I'll be running at Camp Tawanga, this camp I ran for 
a lot of years up by Yosemite has the middle fork of the Tuolumne River running right through it and lots of wonderful swimming holes, we're going to make an elective mikvah that folks can do as part of one of these like traditional rituals. So that's how that's what I mean about leaning into the tradition and innovating for divorce. Yeah. So first things first, um, I want to talk, you know, what is this retreat going to be? And I'm struck by a few things. First off, I'm aware that whenever you're talking about a future tense thing, the question, what will it be of necessity will be different from what the reality actually is, because I'm sure in the moment you'll be responding to things you didn't expect, et cetera, et cetera. But I am curious about your vision. And in particular, I want to just name like there's a number of words that are in that you use in your materials that each could be like an entire retreat. There's divorce, there's healing, there's discovery, um, and there's also retreat. I'm excited to talk about just yeah. what retreats do to some extent. But what are you envisioning for this four-day, three-night event? Tell us more. I'll share this. I am a graduate of Sela, which is it was like a Jewish leadership. Uh, training that I got through Ben the Ark. And they taught us about creating a POP, which is a purpose, outcomes, and process statement. So I never do anything anymore without creating a POP. And at Tawanga, when I was the camp director, we actually had a version of this. We called it the OM, the outcomes and method plan. But POP just adds this like, what's the purpose? That's the big, big, big idea. And then you go into outcomes that are measurable by what will people who experience your program know, feel, or do as a result of participating. So I'll share a little bit about the purpose and the outcomes that I'm hoping for. The purpose is to help divorce or divorcing people who feel broken and in pain find their way back to wholeness through a retreat guided by Jewish healing rituals, community friendship, and professional expertise and guidance. And the outcomes that we hope for is that people who come will feel that Judaism has more to offer them than a get, that they'll have moments of joy and happiness, that they will participate in experiences and Jewish rituals that address their divorce and grief, alleviating some of their pain, that they leave with practical ideas of things they can do that will lead them back to wholeness that they've made a few friends and feel like they're not alone in community, that they're happy they did it, all of those kinds of things. Can you talk about, from your perspective, people that are going through divorce or separations, what is it that they're looking for? And by the way, I think this is a more fundamental question because I think the same question or a variant of it applies to everything that we've been asking all along about Judaism. It's like, I think a lot of people look at Judaism and says, Judaism is a thing. It's a bunch of things that people should do. And we're trying to almost do marketing. Like, how can we get them to do those yeah. things? As opposed to people have needs and something ideally comes to help them with their needs. Maybe Judaism knows how to do that. Maybe it doesn't. And I, I'm fascinated by this because you're saying, well, maybe it doesn't, but it has the tools that through which it could. It so, could. But I want to start with what is the need? Like, as you see it, what is the unmet need in the world that people going through divorce have? So the unmet need is that when you go through divorce, you're doing it alone. Your ex is going through the divorce and your kids are going through it too. But 
it's not like somebody who died in the family and your whole family experienced the same losses you're experiencing and your friends experience it too. And I will say Judaism gets death right. I'm in the middle of dealing with that right now. And a dear friend died. And we even had a virtual shmirah where you guard the body. And then we showed up for the funeral. And then we showed up for the shiva. And then we're bringing things to the family. And I can see that the family is going to have to go through this year-long grieving process, but it's outlined and it's practiced and it's helpful and it's healing. Well, divorce is the death of a marriage. And it's and it has all these other things like if your spouse left you, then you feel like unloved or you have shame. Like if you're used to being successful, but your marriage fails and you're carrying shame around. It's a very rare marriage where the both partners agree, like it's time to end this and let's do this lovingly and respectfully. And it does happen. I have letters that people write to their community as examples of when it happens like that. But that's not how my marriage ended. I didn't want my marriage to end. And I felt so ashamed. I felt like a failure. I felt like I felt more ashamed as a divorcee than I did coming out as a lesbian. And this was in the 80s. But I felt like, no, this was right. And I had a great community of other women around me. And I felt more pride than shame about that. But the divorce was really hard in that way. So what's the need? The need is that you need community. You need other people going through it together. So when I created, an, uh, when I interviewed a bunch of people, when I was trying to figure out like, what is the biggest needs and what should we tackle on this retreat? It's lonely to go through divorce and you burn out your friends too. Like your friends can be there for you. And there's a Jewish teaching that says, when you comfort somebody who needs your comfort, comforting the mourner, you take away one sixtieth of their grief. And I literally thought that to myself a lot, like, oh my God. All right, I got to spread this out. I can't like burden this best friend or that friend. I need to talk to 60 people because I'm like so sad and so unhappy and I'm burning people out. Like it's, you know, they're not going through it. So I think the need is to have community and to have Judaism offer divorcees just what they offer people who have lost somebody in the family. I think that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm curious, like, whether the retreat, as you see it, is a thing that we're going to need for the next decade or so because we're not doing it right in day-to-day Judaism, so to speak. And until we do, then we need a retreat to write what's not right. Um, But that down the road, maybe, we would get it more right in everyday Judaism. And what might that look like? You know, I I was thinking about... um, you know, the comparison, like, a hundred. you know, you're talking about 50% of marriages end in divorce, 100% of lives end in death. Right. <laughs> and we have a way of dealing with that. And it's, you know, really, really, and I wonder, I wonder if maybe why we don't have it in Judaism is, well, until not too long ago, it wasn't that 50% of marriages end in divorce. And, and um, now that it's a reality, you know, it seems like this is an area that growth for Judaism is vitally needed. I mean, it almost feels like if it doesn't figure this out, you know, I, I ask this, you know, what's the point of Judaism? I mean, if, if Judaism can't help people in something deep that 50% of the people are going to go through at some point in their lives, then it seems to be a problem. It so is. I'm wondering, I'm wondering as, as we might think about that, what do you, how do you imagine that could go better in some future state? 
Right. Great question. First of all, to answer the first part of your question, I think that a, div- a divorce and discovery Jewish healing retreat should be happening all around the country every year. Because I think that in the crisis moment of your divorce, this is going to be quite healing and helpful. I don't think the need's going to go away. But the second part of your question is what can a, a Judaism that better addresses divorce look like in the future? I've been thinking a lot about that. Rabbi Laura Geller went through a pretty public divorce many years ago. She's a rabbi in Los Angeles. And she wrote about different rituals that we need to have in Judaism, like taking off the ring or changing the cloth, which is inside a mezuzah, the written prayer inside the mezuzah, the mezuzah being the little ritual object that hangs on the wall. Um, And many people have them at their doorposts, not just of the front door, but also into the bedroom. So changing out that mezuzah and maybe keeping the mezuzah, changing the cloth, the writing that's inside the mezuzah. So people have started to think about how do we ritualize the end of our marriage? Um, I read one ritual that that kind of measure for measure what you do under the chuppah during the wedding, you undo in a ceremony. So instead of drinking from, you have Kiddush early on and under the chuppah, the, the blessing over the wine in one cup, the couple drinks both from one cup. So the undoing of that is you take one cup and you pour it into two cups and, and, and undoing the ritual all the way around. And people are starting to write and record this. But in my perfect world, and I think it's going to take some experimentation over time, we start to get like kind of a regular agreed upon, ah, this is what we do for our divorcing congregants, or this is what we do for our divorcing friends. Like who's bringing us food? Who's driving our kids to school when we're too sad to get out of bed? You know, that sort of thing, I think would be a great response to have concretized and ritualized and regular throughout the country. And so you could divorce in California, go to New York that year and have the New York community still know what is happening. So I, I'll be honest, Dan, when you said the piece about like maybe 10 years down the line, we won't need this anymore. I see where you're getting with that, like that certain kinds of projects, Jewishly or otherwise, we should understand. We've talked about this on the show, like that they fill a role for some amount of time. And the ideal is that eventually we change the culture enough so that it's not needed. I, I hear that. But what surprised me is like so much of the show is about like, synagogues, mainstream institutions, et cetera. Like they're, you know, they're doing Jewish stuff, but like we want people, we want people doing things external from that and starting things up. And my question is, how do we get the folks who are doing those mainstream things to realize the need for going on a retreat like this? I think that retreats are valuable. And and my vision of, you know, quote unquote, everyday Judaism is actually that every Jew or like as many Jews as possible would see going on a retreat of some kind, you know, for some of them, it would be a divorce healing retreat for others. It'd be like, my vision is actually that everybody, it would be like a Jewish thing in the way that a a birth covenant ceremony or a be mitzvah or like, or, or a Jewish wedding. Like it, it would be a Jewish thing to go on retreats. And I actually think that I would love for that to be the everyday Judaism, as opposed to Retreats happening for a bit of time and then going away when we've changed the the rest of it. So I was curious, Deborah, if if you agree with me or Dan or both or how you'd weave this together. Well, 
You are asking a Jewish resident summer camp director of 26 years, <laughs> do I think retreats are valuable? And I'm going to tell you that I think retreats are beyond important, that coming together away from your house, out of your regular comfort life, and ideally into nature, where you are living and breathing Judaism, as opposed to studying the Birkat Mazon, you're just singing it, as opposed to talking about a Kabbalat Shabbat, you just go to it, or you participate in it, or you offer it. And so, yes, I think retreats are an incredible learning environment. And I think the importance of getting away, it's its like going into the wilderness for a little bit to learn something new and coming back slightly changed, regardless of what the topic is. It reminds me, as I, I think about what it was like when I was in the 80s coming out, there were lesbian bars and gay bars all over the mm -hmm. place. I don't even think they're around. I mean, it could be that I'm just old now and I don't go out to bars, or it could be that there just aren't as many queer bars because we're just more accepted, more integrated. And that's, that is terrific. That for me is an obsolescence. In some ways it's a bummer because it was so cool to go to a gay bar, but, um, but, or, or even queer shuls, which is where I used to daven. And now I just feel like there's a lot of queer people at my, at the Jewish day school, at the regular shuls. So it feels a little less of a need. However, about 23 years ago, I started this LGBTQ family retreat called Keshet, which means rainbow in Hebrew. And it was, it predates the Jewish LGBTQ organization called Keshet that is directed by the wonderful Edith Klein. Um, which, and, by the way, means rainbow. So you can understand why uh, yes, a lot of things yes. getting named that. So Keshet, I started um, with 15 families the first year, and they were mostly mom-headed families. And Today, 23 years later, there are 70 families regularly with a wait list to come to this retreat at Camp Tawanga. We've been doing it all of the years, except for the fire years where we had to shut down. But the nature of the LGBTQ family has changed radically. So it's not just gay moms. There's more gay dads. And now there's more straight parents. Why? Because they are raising gender nonconforming kids and they need to come into a place that's LGBTQ and they need their kids to see grownups who are trans folks or, and these straight parents are raising kids who are not like them or, or queer kids. And I'm shocked because by the time I came out, I was like out of college. Um, and so that need for Keshet Camp, for people to come together and go on retreat annually has not changed. And the numbers have grown and grown and grown. And the nature of who we serve has changed slightly, but the, the, the idea behind it is still powerful and necessary. I'm flashing back to a moment in our podcast where we were reflecting on a phrase that I think Shai Held used, and he used it um, as something he's not looking for. But I am using it as something something I am. He used the phrase high voltage Judaism. And he was saying, you know, he's not a high voltage Judaism guy. He likes to have a low voltage Judaism that's very regular, that's like weekly, even daily, that's just sort of an ongoing rhythm that's that's not, you know, bolting you with electricity in the way that high voltage, you know, clear. Um, it's not doing that. I... I'm absolutely somebody looking for high voltage Judaism. When I set foot in a Jewish space, I am hoping that I transform in some way. And I am sad if I don't. Hmm. Now, now, by the way, there's little ways to transform. There's big ways to transform. But in my experience, the success rate, if I were to give grades 
to Jewish communal events and say, you know, this kind of event, uh, an education program in a synagogue gets, you know, an okay grade. I sometimes transform when I go to a synagogue education event. The, the kind of event that would get the highest grade is Shabbat retreats or even just the general realm of retreats. Because there, like you said, I mean, there's something about just the intensity of it. The fact that you're there for a long time, the fact that you sort of live into it, I don't know, that that soaks into you. So that's a thought, not a question. Um, my question relates to the, the part we were talking about before in terms of life cycle rituals and what I would call a paucity of them in today's world. Um, we We haven't framed this as like, boo you Judaism, but like we need better and higher quantity of life cycle rituals. I think part of what you're diagnosing with the need for this divorce and discovery retreat is a much broader problem, which is we've coasted on what a life cycle ritual is. We have a definition in Jewish life of what a life, like if you were teaching the life cycle events to a classroom of people of whatever age, you would say, there's birth rituals, so circumcision. You might, if you're progressive, talk about things that aren't just circumcision, but birth rituals, be mitzvah, or about mitzvah, be mitzvah, wedding, and death. Like that's the quote unquote traditional list. Now, could you find, if you really dig, other kinds of things? Yes. But I think that part of what you're diagnosing is just our world is not the same world that created those four basic life cycle events. We need more. And so I guess I'm curious to hear from you. I mean, you talked beautifully about mikvah and about havdalah. Is there something broader here that you'd comment on about how we Jews need to think more creatively and diagnose other gaps in our life cycle system or in our ritual system, things that we haven't thought of yet? Yes, definitely. And I think there's a, there's a, I have a few thoughts on this, and I've been in the game a long time in the Jewish education game. And that is that what happens on the East Coast is different than on the West Coast. And there isn't a Jewish community in the United States. There hmm. are different communities around the country. And actually, a podcast like yours gives us an opportunity to hear from each other, which thank you very much, because <laughs> we've been doing a lot of stuff out here on the West Coast that nobody knows about because we're never really considered the real Jews. The real Jews are hmm. in New York, in Chicago. But those California Jews, they're wacky. They have these other ideas. But here are some of the things I know that some of my colleagues have done. Miscarriage. That's a huge and sad thing that happens to a family, a woman, and Jewishly, nothing, nothing. So Debbie Finling and Abby Porth started a miscarriage garden in Golden Gate Park. And I, I don't know the details of it, but that's one response to a life cycle event. There's many places I've seen in the secular world respond to certain things like menopause, like retirement. How can we respond Jewishly to a transition in life out of being a full-time working person to not a full-time working person, but somebody who's still with it, who has what to contribute, who wants to feel relevant, who might even have ways to show up in the Jewish community because they got time all of a sudden so they can teach our kids, they can... Um, help our, us with our elderly parents. There's all kinds of things that we could do better, recognizing that we don't live in shtetls where you have huge family support, that most of us don't have our siblings or parents or children nearby us as we age. And so we can do that for each other. 
Um, so I think we can tap into that. And you see little pockets of things happening around the country. And the answer is yes, I think we could figure out a way to identify it, name it, and start to program for it or teach for it or that sort of thing. Okay, so once we have done that, I'm really interested in in your process. This is something I've been trying to get at with a lot of people for a long period of time. Like, what is the process that that we then go through? So you identified in this case a need for a divorce life cycle ritual or life cycle events, right? And then you talked about how you found uh, a ver- you know how you found something in Tashlich and how you found something in. Kaddish and how you found something in the mikvah, you know. So, what's your process for for developing a new a new ritual or a new approach? Let me start with my superpower is running camp, right? And that's what I did. I started when I was twenty three years old, and I did it for my whole career. And I keep innovating on different kinds of retreats. So that's my go to tool. And there were certain things that I think hap- that I offer in all of my retreats. And I'll, I'll just um, add that with um, our mutual friend, Rabbi B'nai Lappi, when we were trying to figure out like, hey, how can we work together? We thought, oh, maybe we could do a retreat. And then B'nai says, well, can I hijack this and make it a Talmud retreat? And I'm like, B'nai, I know nothing about the Talmud, nothing. And she says, I know a lot about the Talmud. I don't know how to run a retreat. I go, I know a lot about how to run a retreat. And that's where we gave birth to Queer Talmud Camp. And at first we didn't want to put queer in the title. So I can't remember, we called it like Talmud Camp or something. I can't remember, but then it just like went, okay, Queer Talmud Camp. And that was that was great. Queer Talmud Camp has some of the very same things that Divorce Camp has, very same things that Keshet Camp has. So let me tell you what I think goes into making a good retreat. The opening matters. How people are greeted out of their cars the very first thing they hear or see or do matters. So I pay a lot of attention to an opening. Like just where do you go to pick up your stuff? How do the people speak to you? What happens first? What happens next? So the opening really matters. Helping people meet each other early on before they go to bed, before they eat their first meal together, doing some kind of group, getting to know each other matters. So we do that. Having opportunities to sing together. So I'm not going to run a retreat without a song leader ever, not ever. Okay. So singing together is a very important aspect of a retreat. If the food is good, it makes it better, but that's not the requirement. Singing is a requirement. Good food is great, but doesn't have to be. Campfires also a requirement. There's something about coming together outside, seeing the stars, talking about the stars. And I had been teaching outdoor education secular. Like, so, you know, I was in my early twenties, I was like going to Lake Tahoe to teach about the transcontinental railroad that went through there. And I also taught in the Redwoods and everything that I was teaching was natural history and cultural history. And then comes Rabbi Stu Kalman and singer songwriter, Debbie Friedman. And I get invited to travel the country with them in this retreat setting. We did it for about three years three days, two nights called Mayan Tefillah, the fountain of prayer. And Stuart say, okay, we're going to tackle, he, he was the conservative rabbi. He says, we're going to tackle the Amidah. And Debbie says, okay, I'll write some music for that. And I said, okay, I'll write a hike for that. And so I would do the nature piece for that. And so with the respect to the process, having 
Jewish nature moments and call it and making them Jewish has been super helpful. At the, at the tip of my tongue, I can talk about the stars in a Jewish way. So campfires are important, getting back to what makes a retreat important, campfires. Elective time is important. And one of the things I'll say is I am a super extrovert. I know lots and lots of people who are not extroverts, who get their energy from being alone. Can they still go on a retreat? Yes, they can, but they need space to be alone. And so a good retreat also has some downtime or has elective time where you could do this or you could just go get your book and sit on your deck and read your book. And both of those things have to be offered to make a retreat good. So I'll leave it at that. And what about the the ritual itself? Like the... Like I'm again. I'm thinking. I'm not necessarily imagining, nor do I think you are, that you've already solved it. That we already know exactly. This is the new way that Jews are going to have rituals to deal with divorce. But you're starting the process, and I'm just curious. Like when you sat down and thought about it, you know, is your process that you know you've encountered these things and and it kind of comes in a flash of creativity, or is your process more methodical, where you say? Here's what somebody going through divorce is needing. Is there a Jewish ritual that I know of that connects to that? You know, or, or is there like if if we were, um, if we were kind of putting a team together to mm-hmm. work on this project, and you were the nature retreat person, and I was the text person, and mm-hmm. you know whatever, like what would be the the methodology that we would use to come up with a new way to to really sort of introduce a new way of 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 experiencing part of the a, a part of the life cycle that the Jewish tradition didn't seem to prioritize. I love this question, Dan, thank you. I think it's both for me, but but let's say we did that exercise. I, I do think about what are the steps to getting a divorce. So the first thing is absorbing that you're getting a divorce and it doesn't happen one day, like it's a process. And for example, how do you take off your ring? When do you take off your ring? What do you do with your ring? What about if you had a ketubah? A Jewish marriage contract or marriage document. I had people who register fill in a a questionnaire. And um, one of the questions is, what are you hoping to get out of the camp? And one of the answers was, what do I do with my ketubah? Should I bring my ketubah? Can we do something with my ketubah? And I'm thinking, wow, I haven't thought about that yet. What what are we going to do with that ketubah? You know, is it a geniza kind of a thing? Or is it a burn kind of a thing? Or is it a cut and then take home? Geniza being burying in the ground. Thank you. Yes, a geniza being buried in the ground if it has God's name on it. So there's, there's that. Then there's all the legal things, like lots of questions about how are we going to raise our children in two different households? Or are we going to keep our family house and I'm going to get an apartment and you're going to get an apartment and we'll spend time different times in the house? There's many things that are, back to Lex's original question, universal for everybody getting a divorce. And then there's particulars for your family. And there are certain things like the first time that your ex takes the kids and you've been living with these kids their whole lives and they've come out of your bodies or one of your bodies. and now your ex has them for a number of days. And what do you do with yourself? Like, what do you do with yourself that first time or the first year? Um, So I think I would think through it methodically through a a year cycle and the events that happen that I know about. And then I don't think the camp can answer all of that, but I certainly think the camp can address some of that. I really like this kind of a ritual brainstorm that we're having and i i super appreciate that 
Um, I, I wanted to ask a question that I, I flashed to a scene of a comedy, of a TV comedy of Scrubs. And there's a scene where two characters actually realize that, so they got divorced a while ago. They have a very, um, they, they got divorced a long time ago, but they actually learned somehow that the paperwork didn't go through. And so they have like a re-divorce. But what, the reason I'm bringing it up is because for them, divorce actually wasn't just tragic. There was a way where each of the two characters kind of felt like it was right. And I want to just allow space, not that I, I, I want to allow space for those for whom divorce may not actually be just the tragic side. It may feel like a relief or a joy, just because I've heard that from people that I'm connected sure. to. And so I, I'm wondering how, because as we're doing this ritual brainstorm, um, it's not that I think either one of you were saying this, but like, I, I don't want us to create like a one ritual with one tone mm -hmm. that would be you know, demonstrably negative for mm -hmm. people that are, there's lots of these people too, mm -hmm. for whom divorce really is that sense of brokenness and tragedy. Mm -hmm. But how might we in this process take into account those for whom this actually is a different set of emotions too? That's right. I think that's a great point. And Rabbi Perry Netter wrote a book called Divorce is a Mitzvah, where he kind of makes a claim that Rashi says divorce is a mitzvah. But Rabbi Akiva, also said that divorce is not a tragedy, but a remedy for a marriage that has broken. And it can be seen as a remedy, right? It, it, and for some people, like I said, the, there have been two couples recently that I just thought sent out the most beautiful letters to the community. I know this might surprise you, but we're divorcing and we're doing it in a, we're, we're consciously uncoupling is another term for it. And yes, I think that's the ideal to, to seek out. Um, I did make a decision about this divorce camp that your ex can't come and you shouldn't sign up if you're thinking that your marriage still might work out. Like this is not about that. So the people who should come to this and register for this camp are people who are sure they're getting a divorce or who are sure they're breaking up. And it's not a place for you and your ex to be together, even if it's amicable. Because even in the most amicable divorces, there are moments of stress 100%. I know this. You're dividing money for one thing. You're dividing property if you have it for another thing. You might be dividing custody time. You might have a decision. What are we doing about Passover? Or I mean, the good thing about Judaism is there's hardly any holiday that's just one day. And so I found that out in my, in my custody agreement that was like, you know, there's all, you could have a Seder any night of Passover. You can have... Um, there, there's just so many ways of doing it. We didn't have like the Christmas Eve or the Christmas day kind of situation. Um, and then our kid who was in college said to us, Hey, I'm coming home for one night of Passover. And you've, you know, they used to go to two different seders, one at my house, one at my ex's house. He said, I'm coming home for one night. I'm still in school. I'm not coming for two seders. So you guys figure it out. And that's when we decided, okay, let's just have one family seder. And that's when my ex and I, maybe six or seven years after our breakout, decided to say, okay, let's just do one seder with the family and with all the family and my ex-in-laws and everybody together. So we, we could get there. Not everyone can. So I'm curious about different kinds of divorces, which obviously like, right, because in my head, I'm, I'm talking, I'm thinking about like, again, I, I'm stuck on this idea, like, what if Judaism did divorce well, in the same way that everybody says Judaism does death well? Is there a way to do divorce well, 
or is it that every divorce is different? You know, or would we ultimately want to say, look, there's there's a certain process that could work really well for the conscious uncoupling. And maybe that isn't something that so much the Jewish tradition had, because I think back in the old days, people didn't do that. If you if it was just a matter of you weren't so happy in your marriage, you, you stayed in the marriage for the most part. And divorce was really about the, the really awful situations. Now that that's no longer the case, it may be even more so that, wow, there's this whole new way of getting divorced, which is kind of the conscious uncoupling. And Judaism could get that really, really good because, you know, that would be methodical and thoughtful and all kinds of reflection could be built in. Whereas the divorces that are really bad in one way or another or are, take somebody by surprise, is there a way to get that right from a you know, proactive perspective, or really maybe that's also like Lex was saying, I mean, that's why forever we're going to, the real, the real thing to do there is, is healing. Yes. I think we can't prescribe how people are going to divorce because there are, you know, hundreds of different reasons that people divorce. And as my wife, Sue Reinhold, Rabbi Sue Reinhold likes to say, you've seen one divorce, you've seen one divorce. But I do think that we can hold up and praise those people who are are divorced, doing a good breakup. But I think what we can recognize is, and I think this is true about death. This is why we get death right. Whatever you feel about the death of the person you've lost is okay. Your feelings are okay. What you do to honor their death, to ritualize all the passings, those, those are prescribed. But your feelings, they're not prescribed. And some people lose a parent they didn't love. And some people lose a parent they absolutely love. Some people lose, a, you know, it, that's how it goes. And so the universal part is what do we do about divorce? Not, you know, should we all ideally try and divorce in this particularly enlightened, you know, positive way? I don't think that's real. I think the reality is somebody's going to fall in love with somebody else, or there hasn't been sex for a really long time, or you name it, there's just a lot of reasons people need to divorce. And then there are a lot of feelings around that. Now, in our tradition, we have divorce in Deuteronomy, and it's super sexist, right? So basically, it says, if a man takes a wife and cohabitates with her, and she fails to please him because he finds something obnoxious about her, and he writes her a document of divorce and hands it to her and sends her away from his house. That's Deuteronomy 24, verse one. Um, and so how do you unpack that? And lots of people have unpacked that, but we've had divorce as long as we've had Jewish marriage. So I have a question that's partially selfish and partially because I just watched the movie Coda recently. Oh, I love so that movie. Coda yeah. being a movie that looks both at people who are deaf and people who are hearing who are their children. So children of, that's what CODA stands for, children of deaf adults. And I was struck by the movie in a bunch of ways, but I am child of divorce. My parents are divorced. And I'm curious, partially selfishly, but, but mostly just generally, if there are other retreats or if there's ideas you've thought about or that your children have thought about, honestly, regarding what similar kinds of rituals might be worth doing for children of divorce, whether it's rituals, retreats, etc. Um, it's not a question I'd thought about, but honestly, as I reflect on my own experience um, without going into the nitty gritty details, even in a situation where I actually didn't 
have a sense of like deep tragedy about it. That that wasn't my experience of what happened. I still could have used a, a ritual of closure, um, mm-hmm. either a secular yeah. one or especially one refracted through Jewish lenses. And, you know, a, a million questions come up. Would I do that with my parents? Would I do it with each one of them separately? Would it just be me? Would it be with other people that are gathered together that are children of divorce without their... Like, I have a hundred possible ideas, but I'm curious if you've thought about it or, or if your children have. That's a great, no, I haven't really thought about that because this is really specifically for adults and they can't bring their kids to this retreat. But I think it's great. I am not a child of divorced parents. And in fact, part of the shame of my divorce was that my cousins were all married. My grandparents all stayed married. My parents stayed married. My siblings were all married. And I was the first divorce in the family, like the first. I do think that a retreat for my kids would have been great at the time or within the first year would have been really fantastic. And we're going to have a divorce cafe modeled on a grief cafe in uh, the first night of camp where you go to a table and you sit with other people who want to talk about a particular topic so that the table will have a table topping and it might say, I'm so angry with my ex. And then you go to that table and talk there. And then, but there's custody, a a table talking about custody. And remember I said, you burn out your friends and they're like done giving you good advice, but the wisdom's in the room. It's not that each table is going to have an expert at the table, but that the people who are getting divorced will be wanting to talk about this, but we'll also have ideas about that. So they'll have this divorce cafe, but I could see that happening for kids too. Like I know, and I know from my kids, and then I know from my stepkids that moving to two houses was such a pain in their ass. And like when they went to college and they just got to stay in their dorm room for the first time, that was huge for my kids. They used to talk about that all the time. And so what would be the power of just knowing that here are other kids and we're just going to give, we're just going to name it. We're going to say it out loud. These things that just get under our skin or my mom has a new girlfriend or my dad has a new girlfriend, whatever. My mom has a new boyfriend, all of those things that are tough. Because another thing that came up for me is that I thought a lot about how to be a parent and that was my whole come from place. And then I got remarried to a woman who had two kids and like there was no manual about how to be a stepmom, but you know, there are lots of iconographic step monster images in movies. And so what we decided was that we were not going to not ever yell at each other's kids, but also not even correct each other's kids. So I'd have to pull her aside, go, this is just bugging the shit out of me. And you got to deal with this, you know, and, and every once in a while, you know, she'd say, oh yeah, okay, I got that. Or I'm sorry, like, just suck it up. That's, that doesn't bug me. So I'm not going to deal with it. And we kind of have to like, nobody talks about that, like how to be a good step parent and that we're not going to talk about that at divorce camp, but that is a thing that people would love to talk about. I'm sure. So we've covered a lot of ground here and I'm really grateful to you for that. I, um, I'm now thinking about other opportunities we might have to really dive into the value of retreats because you gave some beautiful wisdom there. And I think we could really carry that forward and think about like what's happening generally when we go on retreats. But just to close out, do you have any closing thoughts from your own experience or from what you're thinking about in crafting this retreat that people listening out there, whether they themselves have experienced divorce or not, might benefit from hearing? Divorce affects the people going through the divorce and it affects their family members. And when I was thinking about like, who do I market this to? It's not just to the people going through the divorce, but it's the people who love them. 
So their parents, for example, if you're an elder parent and your kid is going through a painful divorce, what can you offer them? And sometimes it's the parents who are more connected to Judaism and their 30-year-old, 40-year-old kid is going through divorce. So I think what I want to say is if you know anybody who is going through divorce and would benefit from being in community of other people going through divorce, which in and of itself is a huge part of the healing. Like, like I said, if you just gather people together and probably didn't do any programming, it wouldn't be as good, but it would be powerful. And then took them to a beautiful place, like right outside Yosemite National Park and gave them time to be in nature. Giving somebody hope that they can feel whole again is really helpful. That you feel so broken during divorce. And if you're not used to feeling broken, it's hard to see that you will eventually come out the other side. And I think for anybody who's experiencing that brokenness or anybody whose loved one is experiencing that brokenness, whether it's your sibling, your child, your best friend, I would recommend checking out this Divorce and Discovery Jewish Healing Retreat because I think it will be helpful. And even though it's in its first iteration, we have so much experience offering uh, retreats that I think it'll be good. And I think by year three, that's when we'll be able to go out to the rabbis of the community and go, okay, this really works. We've tried it and we've seen it over and over again and it keeps working. So in year one, I wouldn't come back to you and go, okay, this is how it's going to work. I think it will take me till year three to be able to go, okay, these are the good rituals that should happen everywhere. Well, that's 37 years quicker than the first Jewish retreat of wandering in the desert. So that's a pretty quick, <laughs> quick turnaround. So I'm impressed. But thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us. It's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Lex. Thank you, Dan. What a pleasure to be with you and an honor. And I'm in awe of your program. So I'm, I'm glad to be on this podcast, really. Thanks. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. Before we tell you all the different ways that you can be in touch with us, we want to give a little reminder of that shout out we mentioned at the top about the Digital Storytellers Lab. Uh, you can head to jwinitiative.com to learn more and consider applying. And uh, with that, we will close out this episode in the same way we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Third, you can email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. And we also deeply appreciate it if you are able to financially support us with a donation on either a monthly recurring basis or just a one-time gift, which you can do at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.